Welcome to our Climate and Sustainability Trailblazers podcast with me, Emily Faramond. Today, we're discussing the very important topic of the role of women in the climate change agenda. And to help with that, I'm delighted to be joined by Nithya Sharma, Director of Global Strategy at Women's World Banking. Women's World Bank are an organization that creates greater economic stability and prosperity for women by designing and advocating for policy engagement, digital financial solutions, workplace leadership programs, and gender lens investing. Nithi is focused on inclusive finance, fintech strategy, and digital innovation. She is currently leading the development and implementation of Women's World Banking's 10-year strategy to reach 100 million women with financial solutions. I'm also joined by Hortense Biard from Baringa, an expert in climate and sustainability strategy who's passionate about supporting financial institutions as they integrate climate and sustainability into their strategy and operations. Welcome both, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join me. Nithya, it's wonderful to have you on our podcast, and what great timing given it's International Women's Day. Can you start by telling us a little bit more about your personal and professional interest in sustainability? Absolutely. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you for inviting Women's World Banking and me to share our perspective. For me, this is a very personal journey. Uh, my father spent his career working in renewable energy at the World Bank, but in his retirement um, has now invested in bringing sustainable agriculture to our ancestral village in Andhra Pradesh, India. Um, this is an area that's very prone to drought and the challenges that come with that from a financial perspective, um, including over indebtedness, for example, um, in order to support one's livelihood. Um, so, you know, seeing the challenges, uh, changes that we've been able to make um, in teaching the farmers that we work with more sustainable techniques, including um, more sustainable irrigation techniques, again, in an area that's prone to drought, enabling them to increase their crop yields um, and have access to markets to sell their produce. So personally um, and professionally, you know, I've seen how climate change can affect those most vulnerable, as well as the opportunities that come to innovate and build solutions that support these communities to adapt and mitigate um, these effects. And so for me, um, it's an interrelated story that's deeply personal. And that's fantastic and fascinating. And, and thank you for sharing that with us. And Hortense, can I ask you to introduce yourself as well and let us know a little bit more about why this topic's important to you? Yes, absolutely. And thank you, Emily, for inviting me. I'm super glad and excited to be here. So um, first of all, just a quick introduction on myself. Um, I work in our climate and sustainability practice uh, for Beriga, and I'm actually helping financial services uh, embracing the three important topics, climate change and sustainability as part of their operating model. Um, from a personal standpoint, why I'm passionate about this topic, it, it, it goes back a little bit to my professional life. Um, I've always worked with financial services, whether as a consultant or directly in the industry. And as I was involved in my career, I was evolving and, and at the same time raising my two kids, um, I started to feel a lack of purpose in my professional life. And I didn't feel like it was really adequate and inadequacy with the way I wanted to raise my kids. So. Uh, and, I, and I wanted them to pay attention to those very important topics, uh, especially for our young kids thinking about how the world is, is evolving. So when I started to realize that uh, financial services are actually a big role to play in supporting the transition to a low carbon economy and a more sustainable world overall, it all made sense to me that I, I wanted to be part of this journey and I wanted to spend my energy and time helping my clients uh, to really embrace those topics. So 
uh, that's all start how it started. And obviously, as a woman in a quite male dominant industry, I've always been a strong advocate of women empowerment. So the interconnection and intersection between those two topics, uh, mitigation of climate change uh, in the women population is fascinating to me. Fantastic. And I certainly know some of your responses there resonate with me, as, a, as I'm sure they do with many of our listeners. Um, so last year, Beringa and Women's World Banking partnered to analyze the interconnections between gender, financial inclusion and climate change with the aim of increasing awareness around the impact of climate change specifically on women. Nithya, can you tell me a little bit more about why Women's World Bank feels that climate change is an important topic for women and help us to understand the work that you're doing in this space? Absolutely. So we see the impact of climate change from two different perspectives. Um, one, you know, the low-income women that we work with um, really are the ones that are most affected. You know, I think we're uh, we're all familiar with some of these stats, but you know, of the 1.3 billion women, um, or billion people living in poverty, nearly 70% are women. Uh, women are highly overrepresented in the agriculture sector, which is predominantly affected by climate change. Um, we're also seeing, you know, the first of um, unfortunately, what we're calling climate refugees, right? Um, those who are displaced. Um, and, you know, there's evidence that suggests nearly 1.2 billion people could be globally displaced, the majority of whom um, are going to be women and girls, 80% of whom are going to be women and girls uh, by 2050. And so again, you know, we see that women are the most vulnerable segments um, to be affected by climate change. But we at Women's World Banking really see that as the opportunity, right? Um, our whole um, work centers around including women, including women's voices in the design of solutions and as we innovate, because those who are most affected are best positioned to tell us what works for them, what doesn't work for them, and what is really going to make that difference. Um, and so including women leaders and women's voices at the center of this debate around climate change um, is really uh, is really core to what we do. I think, you know, last year we had COP27, um, you know, the global conference, but only seven out of 110 of the leaders represented there were women. Um, so again, you're seeing that shocking disparity um, and so when you're not at the table, you're not having a voice, you're not able to advocate for what works for you. And we really see our role as being able to bring those women's voices to the, uh, to the table. A few of the ways that we're doing that, um, obviously, uh, you know, we have a very uh, rigorous uh, and robust research department that really takes the time to understand these women's voices, their behaviors, their challenges, and elevate that um, into insights that, that we can share globally. Um, our solution design, uh, we, we uh, deploy a very unique um, women-centered design approach to how we uh, develop uh, different products and solutions that, again, put the woman's voice at the center um, and do rapid innovation in order to understand what works when, or what doesn't work. Um, we, we're also advocates and influencers, right? And I think that was one of the great partnerships that we had last year where, with, with Baringa, where we were actually able to have a workshop um, with our global network um, of over 60 institutions reaching nearly 140 million women. Um, and so by uh, putting... Um, partnering with organizations like yourselves and putting uh, our thought leadership out there, collective thought leadership out there in the forms of workshops, as well as, um, you know, the blog posts that we were able to collaborate on. Um, you know, these are the ways that we really see elevating these voices and bringing that intersection of, you know, gender, climate change, and financial inclusion. We really see financial inclusion, which is our core mission, 
as a way to build that resilience and that security so that women can adapt to the realities of climate change, because at this point it is a reality, right? So it's really about mitigating and adapting at this point. And we see the security um, and prosperity that can come from access to find different financial services as being core in that. Thanks for sharing that. And there's some really quite surprising and shocking statistics there, right, in terms of both the impact of climate change on women, but actually how we're represented at the table around climate change and how we can really, really move the dial around that. For those of you who've listened to our previous podcast, you'll know at Moringa we talk a lot about the concept of a just transition, and actually it's at the heart of the work that we do in the industry. Well, Tance, can I ask you to share the key areas where you feel financial services can support in delivering a just transition? Yeah, and, and as, as I mentioned in my intro, I see the role of financial services being quite critical because if you think about it, they decide where to allocate capital and to whom, right? Um, and as we're seeking to make the world more sustainable and more equal across genders, there's absolutely a need to integrate environmental, social and governance criteria in lending and investment decisions and aiming to align sustainable development goals, sorry. This doesn't come without challenges, to be very honest, because as financial services start thinking about how to mitigate climate risk, there is a risk that specific lending or investments are going to be put in, in place and might negatively impact low and medium income communities, including women. Um, and, and in my mind, that's where just transition is so important and comes into the, uh, into the, uh, into the picture. Um, and it, it is basically finding the right balance between, yes, mitigating those climate risks, it's coming and it's impacting financial services, but still pursuing and pushing the SDGs as standards and goals and funding lower income communities. So the institutions who will actually be the first one and who will manage properly to bring those two main strategies together. And in my mind, as of today, it's still a little bit siloed and that's where we're helping our clients to bring those two components together, having good mitigate climate risk mitigation strategy, but while still funding uh, lower income communities, in my mind, they will be the winners in within financial services. And Hartans, I actually want to pick up on something you said, um, because that's exactly kind of the space that we work in. And we really don't see that as opposing, right? We really do see that yeah. investing in these um, you know, lower income segments, you know, low income women in our case, we really believe that that is the business case, right? It's not just the socially right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do from, from a business perspective. So when you think about ESG investments, um, you know, the the pathway forward is to really prove out that ESG investments are actually driving both social goals as well as business opportunities and business growth. Um, and I think we've seen that. And I think that's where the story should continue to evolve so that you're not having conflicting um, arguments between, you know, do I serve a low income segment and or, you know, do I mitigate climate change? I think you do one by doing the other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, and the financial services institutions are trying to address that. It's, it's tough in front of everyone's mind, but it's just very difficult to grab together because there are so many criteria coming into right. place. So it's, it's a fascinating topic. Right. Yeah. And Nithi, just, just broadening out your thinking there. How does that relate to kind of the broader topic of women's financial inclusion and the work that you're doing at Women's World Bank? Yeah, so for us, 
you know, again, um, when we think about, I mentioned earlier, you know, our women-centered design approach, putting women at the um, at the heart of everything we do, it's not about um, designing something special or unique for women, right? It's not about the pink credit card or, you know, something like that for women. It's really about understanding what are the barriers that women face. And in our 40 plus years of work, we see that women face unique barriers and challenges to access to finance, right? Um, whether it's uh, mobility constraints in certain markets, social cultural norms, um, biases, right? Uh, we actually did uh, some work last year on algorithmic bias in credit lending um, and looking at different ways that even AI models can be biased. Um, and, and, you know, you start filtering out women even at the top of the funnel before they can even get to a credit assessment. Um, and so again, it's about understanding these unique barriers and challenges and going through a human-centered design approach to design around them, right? Design for them and around them so that these products work for women. And I wanna make the point that when we just say design for women, we never mean that you're exclusively designing for women. It's not designing for women at the exclusion of men or other segments. It's really about, um, designing for everyone. And the research has borne out when you design with a gender um, lens in mind or a gender focus in mind, you're actually opening up the markets to anyone because these barriers and challenges, though they may be at a different degree, um, are also present for men, right? And, you know, nobody wants to sit in a bus for eight hours to go to your nearest bank branch, you know, if, if that's the nearest, um, you know, location that you have, whether it's a man or a woman. Women have unique constraints in the sense that they may have more responsibilities at home um, that may prevent them from being able to do that. But by solving that challenge, you're actually opening up access um, to all segments. And you're, again, you know, uh, we were talking about the business case and that business opportunity. Yeah, you know, you're growing the pie for everyone, right? So from a financial institution perspective, um, you know, that's really what we want to um, what we want to uh, uh, work with our financial part, you know, institution partners to do is break down these barriers so that they are actually expanding the pie for everyone, creating again both the social impact um, and the business goal. Thanks, Nithya, for confirming it's not about pink credit cards. So uh, I'm glad that we're focused on, you know, much broader financial inclusion and, and genuine purpose. And I think it's a really, really important point you're making there around actually almost people are unwittingly excluded and therefore yeah. just being a little bit more thoughtful about inclusion and how you ensure that, that certain segments of society aren't excluded is, is really, really important. And I want to just jump in, sorry, one, one more time. Um, we did some consumer research with women customers in uh, in Kenya a few years ago. And this quote will never leave me. This one woman, business entrepreneur, small business, you know, MSME owner, she said, "Treat me like the boss I am," you know, um, and that's all they that. want, right? They don't, you know, that that quote, you know, this was um, a few years ago, but it just sticks with me, right? Treat her like the boss she is. She doesn't need a special product or you know special consideration. She just wants to be acknowledged um, as an equal and 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 taken uh, and and her her challenge with her unique situation taken into account. And so um, I just thought that that was a powerful quote that I wanted to share. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Back to you, Hortense. So just on the back of that, in your mind, how can 
the financial services industry therefore provide the support needed to deliver that just transition and what role do we think kind of policy intervention or public advocacy needs to play in supporting women's financial inclusion in the face of climate change? Yeah, and, and before I answer your question, I love the quote and I think I'll probably use it more and more with my clients because I think it's a perfect introduction point uh, on this topic. But um, to, to your question, Emily, um, financial services, especially in the US, to be fair, are doing already quite a lot on the social side uh, of ESG, right? There's a lot of philanthropic activities. It's all, always been core and front. Uh, of the strategies of financial institutions and strong focus on low medium income community, communities such as with um, affordable housing products, tailored uh, to minority population, etc. So there is essentially a lot of funding allocated uh, to those communities. But what is probably lacking um, is the support in understanding the impact of climate change on those communities and what can be done through training, education around climate change and specifically client engagement. So the more, in, in my opinion, the more women um, and the more communities uh, within lower income uh, communities understand how they might be impacted by climate change and but also what are some of the opportunities uh, actually raised by the transition, uh, better outcomes will get from the transition, right? Because again, it's, it's, it's based on understanding the impact and understanding the opportunities. So, client engagement from financial services, making sure relationship managers go to, to those communities uh, is fundamental, uh, in my opinion. From a policy standpoint, uh, it's actually interesting because we're seeing the US regulators being more and more focusing on lending criteria that could impact uh, LMI communities again. So um, we've been working with a, a large US bank uh, in the past couple of months and, and one of the U.S. regulators has been asking about progress made in climate risk management and also progress made in embedding um, specific lending criteria um, tailored to, to climate risk. And one of the key questions that they had top of their mind was, how do you make sure that it doesn't negatively impact low medium income communities? So the regulator is actually pushing the needle um, and, and, and really trying to make sure that financial services, again, are bringing those two, two components together. So we're really seeing the, the, the policymakers and the regulator um, taking action here. And do you feel area. like you're seeing then our clients in financial services respond in a positive way to that push they're seeing? Yes, yes. In, so one of the key things that some of our clients are doing on the back of this of this push from the regulator is to start thinking about um, key risk indicators and key metrics that they can actually start um, implementing just to make sure that taking an example, um, how much of my how much climate risk assessments I've done on specific counterparties in my past year, um, and resulting from and results from those climate risk assessments did I see an impact on the number of loans and lending that I produce to my low medium income community? So it, it's not, I don't think there is maturity, maturity enough yet to fully integrate that as part of their climate risk assessment. Uh, but there is a, at least a desire to start monitoring potential impact on total funding addressed to low income communities, which is a very good so sign. Moving in the right direction, but with probably quite a lot more to work, work to do. I agree. That's fair. 
Nithya, back to you. I just wondered what your take is on how financial services institutions can do more to support women's financial inclusion. Yeah, and I would actually like to pick up on a few of the points that Hartans was talking about in terms of, um, you know, policy advocacy and 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 things like that. I really see um, three roles that uh, financial service providers can play, and and let's start at the top, right? I think um, the first is you know, systemic change, which comes from policy advocacy and, and advocating for systemic change to improve um, uh, access to finance for everyone, right? And that's a big part of why Women's World Banking does policy work is because we want to make sure that the ecosystem is a place that both the financial service providers as well as the women clients um, can thrive and, and, and access the resources they need. So that's number one. Number two, um, and this is where Women's World Banking plays a role as an investor, right? So we actually um, have a private equity investment fund um, uh, arm that actually invests in these institutions. Second role is actually to build um, gender diverse teams within their uh, uh, within the financial service providers, right? Um, Theory being that the more diversity you have, the more um, gender diverse your teams are, the more likely you're going to be to focus on a more diverse client base, including low income women um, at the end of the day. Right. So uh, really focusing on elevating the voices of women leaders and the capacity building of women leaders. And then at the grassroots level, it's really about, um, as we've talked about, designing for women. And I think, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about what that looks like at Women's World Banking. But again, focusing on your end user and understanding their pain points and challenges and making sure that your product um, isn't um, exacerbating barriers and that it's actually unlocking barriers so that they're able to see the value in your solution um, and, and the use case for, for your solution. So, um, you know, joining us in policy advocacy, building the capacity of women leaders, and then at the grassroots level, um, designing for the end, with the end customer, the woman customer in mind. Fantastic. And, and Nithi, you talked there about the fund that you have in the market. And as you know, we've seen an explosion of sustainable financial services products in the market. Could I ask you to share your thoughts on how sustainable finance products such as ESG-oriented funds can support in fueling a just transition? Yeah, and you know, when we think about a just transition, it's, you know, for me, I define that as making sure that nobody's left behind, right? Um, that, that everybody from, you know, the wealthiest to the most vulnerable are brought along and offered the same opportunities um, to support themselves, their families, and their communities. And so when I think about investments, um, you know, I really think that the voice of an investor carries a lot of weight, right? And I think that's why the role of an investor is so important in facilitating this just transition, especially, you know, one of the reasons that we take on this gender lens investing role is because, you know, as an investor, we can influence management, right? We can say, hey, we need these reports. We want you to report on these certain statistics and, and measure. And, you know, um, I think the saying is, you know, what matters gets measured or what's, what's measured matters. Um, forget how it goes. But but the idea being that, you know, we can hold the, the financial service providers um, accountable to the vision that that they set out when we invested, right? Um, we invest because they they claim that they want to support women and um, and and drive more, more um, uh, products for women customers. 
And then as an investor, we can say, okay, this is how we're going to hold that accountability. Um, and so I think that's why the role of an investor is so important and why we do believe that gender lens investing um, is the way, you know, is one of the ways forward um, to facilitating that that just transition. Fantastic. And anything you want to add on that, Hortense? I totally second that. The I would just highlight one one challenge that we are seeing at the moment, and and I know policymakers and and regulators in the U.S. and in Europe and UK are trying to tackle that. It's just um, a lack of little bit of consistency in the way some of the criteria are being applied uh, to specific ESG or impact funds. Um, and also, we're seeing growing demand uh, from everyone, uh, from clients, um, stakeholders all around the world. There is a little bit of um, and I think hesitation sometimes to go on those funds because the use of proceeds um, is not very clear. So you've probably heard, both of you, we have a lot of kind of different cases around greenwashing cases, uh, some financial institutions here in the U.S. being fined uh, by the SEC because of poor um, criteria being used uh, as part of their ESG uh, funds. So um, in, in my opinion, it I think the the purpose, the, the objective is here, the demand is here. There is just a lack of robust process and consistent process going on. So the more policymakers, again, can help bringing this consistency in terms of which criteria are being used and what are the thresholds to be used to define a, a fund impact or just transition fund. I think that that's really where we're going to need to push forward in, in the couple of next years. Agree. And I think, you know, it's important point you raised there around greenwashing. I, you know, we yeah. need to make sure that these investments are really, really credible. And um, it's really, really clear to everyone exactly, that, as you say, the use of proceeds um, and that we kind of, I think, uh, not protect the market, but make sure the market is as transparent and as credible as it possibly can be. And I think, you know, for us, that transparency is is key, right? Um, yeah. You know, when when I spoke earlier about the pink credit card, you know, we actually call that pink washing, right? So uh, you don't want to pink wash, you don't want to green wash, you, you really want to make sure that what you're doing at the end of the day is addressing the root problem and addressing the the end result that you're hoping to, um, to achieve. And the transparency to make sure that um, you're holding yourself accountable, you know, wherever your role may be, uh, you know, as as an NGO, as an investor, as an investee, um, you know, I think uh, making sure that that you're transparent um, with the results you're achieving, so that you can track um, track where you are and 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 um, and make sure that uh, people buy into it, right? Because this is a movement, and and this is still the nascency of this movement. Yeah, and investors are striving for this transparency. Right, they're asking for it. So yeah, exactly. That's, that's great. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we've talked a little bit about the importance of public advocacy and external intervention. I guess I'd quite like to explore what what we think companies and our listeners, in fact, can do internally within their organisations to support women's inclusion. Nithya, have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you know immediately once. One thing that comes to mind, you know, as I talked about, um, there's different roles for a company, right? So the easiest one is to really look at yourself, take take a look at yourself and look at your internal gender diversity, right? Um, and really think about, you know, how am I supporting my women, um, my women staff, my women leaders, my my women employees 
throughout their journey from, you know, the moment that they're recruited all the way through promotion and, and retention, right? So when you look at your customer or your, your employee journey, excuse me, um, you know, really think about um, how you can develop your women talent and elevate their voices, because the more diversity you have around at your table, the more brilliant ideas you're going to get in terms of um, how to grow your business, um, you know, grow, grow your market opportunity, as well as, you know, supporting um, the segments that need to be supported. So I think, uh, you know, exploring, um, you know, we offer uh, global leadership training, um, primarily for regulators, but as well as, you know, um, some customized programs for financial service providers uh, to build the capacity of high potential women leaders within uh, regulatory bodies, um, as well as, uh, as well as different institutions. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's the first thing um, that, 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 that comes to mind for me. And then, you know, um, women's role banking is always, you know, uh, 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 happy to talk about our women-centered design approach and how do how then do you translate those ideas that these brilliant diverse people are going to bring to your table? Um, how do you translate that into actionable results, right? Tangible business results, um, and that's through that product innovation piece that I think um, that I think uh, you know can um, can uh, can come together. And then finally, um, you know, we always welcome um, anybody who's interested to to join us and to learn more about the work that we're doing. Um, shameless plug, we're actually having our first um, in-person summit, uh, Making Finance Work for Women Summit uh, in three years. Um, so the last one was in 2019. This year, it's going to be held in Mumbai, India from May 23rd to May 25th. Um, and uh, we can, you know, share the details, however appropriate um, on, uh, you know, via, via the podcast. But we welcome, you know, those interested to join us and to learn from others who are innovating in the space of financial inclusion, climate change, and digital innovation. Um, and, and I think, you know, those forums where leaders can come together and really uh, talk to one another and learn from one another, I think, um, are powerful assets as well. I agree. And uh, sounds fascinating and um, fantastic event to look forward to in Mumbai in June. Hortense, was there anything you wanted to cover in terms of the action individuals and companies can take to support with this agenda? Yeah, I mean, the one that comes to mind and building on, on what Nitya was saying is uh, anchoring into DE&I strategies. So obviously, I'm thinking about financial institutions. A lot of financial institutions have existing uh, DE&I structure, but growing this structure and growing the work string and, and the working group um, and again, anchoring into what is the broader ESG strategy? What are the sustainable development goals that we are trying to address? Because let's be clear, I don't think financial services are, can do all, uh, but they have definitely a part of it. So really linking those, having a little bit more strategic thinking about how those things get together. So, and then anchoring the DE&I strategy as part of their sustainable development uh, goals and, and objectives. Um, and what thing, what, one of the things we've seen um, through several DNI activities, um, action by our clients in, in the past, is really um, anchoring into training as well, right? So there is probably, again, especially in financial services, a little bit of uh, shift in the mindset that needs to happen uh, to really foster uh, women inclusion uh, world within the companies. Um, and we're seeing more and more training uh, being considered as mandatory uh, to help with this uh, with this change in in, in culture mindset. Um, so that's one which is obviously a key focus of our of the companies and our clients, and that we're helping with. 
Um, another element which is probably more coming from the external stakeholders and coming from uh, external policies, but does have an impact on the DEI agenda and women's inclusion is uh, more and more states in the US are actually asking for more diversity in specific boards. So if you take the example of California or New York, they are quite progressive in terms of really putting um, diversity agenda on top of the of their requirements. Uh, and it's actually, ha it has an impact on how financial services address that and, and move the needle. So those two components, like obviously training, changing the culture, the mindset uh, within the company, but then also looking at what good looks like from a US perspective, what are the most progressive states are doing and what are the information they are now requiring, especially from a disclosure standpoint, um, bringing all those components together to help form like a very good strategic DNI um, initiatives. Uh, that's how our clients are thinking about it and where we're helping them with at the moment. Fantastic. I'm sorry to say that unfortunately we've run out of time for today. Um, I wanted to thank both Nithya and Hortense for your time. I have massively enjoyed our conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your insights. And of course, thank you to all our listeners. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do follow, like, share, and look out for future installments of Climate and Sustainability Trailblazers.